Hello, I'm Dr. Jeremy Samet. I'm the director of the CIS uh, Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society program, and I'm here having a chat with Claire Fox, who is the director of the UK think tank, the Academy of Ideas, and the founder of the Battle of Ideas. Thanks for coming out to Australia for our flagship conference, Concilium. It's great to be here. I was very lucky to attend the Battle of Ideas last year, and I think in world terms, it is literally unique because I don't think there is another conference that is genuinely committed to genuine debate and free expression of diversity of opinion. What was it that led you to decide to conduct this conference? I think probably going to too many events that weren't like that. <laughs> and I have always objected to the notion of an echo chamber. I thought it would make you lazy, make us all lazy. Um, so I've either found myself in somebody else's echo chamber where I was very isolated or, on the other hand, more comfortable in one that everybody agreed with me but it didn't feel legitimate. So we really wanted to try and stir things off intellectually and create a genuine public square, I think, yeah. where you, know, you can actually speak freely. Which is increasingly rare these days, and we, we might come back to what some of the sources of those things are. But there's also, as I understand, there's, there's a, a unique element to Battle of Ideas, which is that you, in a sense, encourage people to self-curate, that you encourage people to bring you ideas and issues that they feel are important, and then with the proviso being that you ensure that there are, is a diversity of opinion and you present both sides or many sides of the debate. Yeah, so we, we have over 100 panel discussions, and we're a very small team. So although we have a sort of core set of ideas of things that we want mm. to discuss, we encourage yeah, everybody from retired professors to undergraduates to anyone in between um, to come along and say, you know, I really feel passionately that we should talk about, somebody's come forward mm. and said, uh, we should talk about young people, why Greta Thunberg has been given a voice and why it's sort of school children that seem to be leading the political debate. There's a nice idea from a primary school teacher who's teamed up with a uh, as somebody who works in public policy, and they've curated a really nice discussion. You know, I'm a control freak, so it all comes through us. But um, broadly speaking, that was their idea and not mine. And that's the way you kind of put the festival together. One of the key things that the Academy stands for, that the Battle of Ideas stand for, is this notion that should be um, intrinsic to a democratic society, is that the key to a democratic society is that we respect the mutual rights of all people to express their views, to have free speech, uh, intellectual inquiry. But that's increasingly not the case, and we see that across so many elements and uh, institutions in society, from universities to corporates to um, public broadcasters in particular. I hate to say this, but it, it's actually the, I fear that it's the left that has driven this a lot, and you, you are of the left. Why has the left sort of turned away from rational debate, democratic discussion? What, what has driven this? Well, it's inability to win arguments, I'm afraid. I mean, that is the reality. Um, there's been far too much reliance historically from the left of policing debate and discussion and no platforming people. Sadly, it's not confined to the left anymore. I mean, mm. the right wouldn't need to be complacent on this question because mm. I've found that that's a change and a shift that both sides of the political divide are now sort of divided about their views on freedom. So, you know, there's quite a lot of people on the right who actually sound like left-wing social justice warriors, maybe on their particular yeah. issues, but you get that. But I think that what we were trying to do as well was just to recognise that things are complicated yeah. without being too um, 
uh, uh, pretentious about it that, that, that most ideas are contested, even things, even an issue like free yeah. speech. It's not as though that's a straightforward, you know, you can assert I believe in free speech and hope you'll win. You have to really give some substance to it. Always have new challenges. What do you do about hate speech or what do you do about trolls on Twitter? Mm. So you're always trying to think, how do I win this argument? I can't just keep quoting you know, the old greats. I can't yeah. just say, have you read J.S. Mill in a kind of uh, voice like that? So how do you bring these arguments alive? And the only way you can do that is to recognize there are more sides to an argument than one. Have, has the battle actually been targeted by people who you say, you know, you, you shouldn't, it's, which is what they always say, you know, not that you, you shouldn't talk about that or even more, you can't talk about it. Have you been targeted for, on that level? It, more, you will always have people who'll say, I'm not going to speak at that because there's too many people that I don't mm. like. So they deplatform themselves. Yep. So you, you end up a little bit difficult. Uh, there are difficult issues where you know that there are some people who just mm. won't come anywhere near you. Yep. And that's, uh, I think, a sign of the times and increasing numbers of people will just simply say, I don't want to have this out in public. You know, mm. there is no debate. I mean, think of yeah. some of the discussions that you've heard that around. Mm. Obviously, the classic one is something like climate change. And it's not a question of setting up a panel where you have a debate which says, is climate change happening or not? Or even if it's man-made, but it's also, there's lots of policies that come from an acceptance of a particular version of a discussion on climate change that you should be able to discuss, of which there are gonna be lots of different opinions. And yet some people will say from the environmentalist movement, there's no debate, I'm not discussing that. Anyone who challenges the orthodoxy is obviously a denier and should not be engaged with. That's it, really interesting. It sort of picks up your criticism of the right, which is that what what used to unite the left and right was that there was a belief in objectivity, rational debate, but now it's everything is so personalised. And I, I'm not sure if it's, a, if it's a product of social media, but everything is, there, there is almost an emotional response to these issues, which is, and that's really what is drive, I think is driving the the, 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 the restrictions on free speech, which is that someone has an emotional response to an issue, either it's to say, you know, you're offending other people or I'm offended, and that shuts down debate. Well, it's a form of identity politics in a way that you embody the idea in such a way that, you know, if somebody insults the idea, they insult you. Yeah. And people taking things that personally. But I think there's also um, a different attitude socially to uh, what makes you a person. And so, mm. Um, whereas reason and intellect were what we used to value, now it's authenticity and emotion and feeling. And lived experience. And lived experience, of course, that classic. Mm. And so what you get is that if you actually try and stand above the fray, you're treated as though you're emotionally illiterate. In mm. fact, that's the phrase that's often used. Mm. So you're, in order to um, prove that you mean a, a, a position, you have to kind of embody it in this way. and that means that things get very personal very quickly and uh, I think it's the collapse of ideologies. I'm a fan of ideologies, yeah. I know that not everybody is. I think that in, in a period where you have the collapse of ideologies, which I would consider to be political principle really yeah. and ideals, yeah. um, that's replaced by a kind of very dry technocracy and a kind of managerialist style and the, the gap that's left, the kind of human gap mm. that's left has been felt, been been uh, inhabited then by these kind of more emotional, uh, personalised mm. ways of expressing politics. And not only is it a threat to democracy, I think it's also a threat to 
politics in the best sense of the term, yeah. which is that we debate issues, we try and find the right answer, and then we, we all live with the results because we've, we've had a proper debate. Um, I'd like to get your views on this. There is um, one particular response to these issues that we're talking about, these free speech and, and democracy issues, has been the rise of a particular group of people who like to call themselves centrists. And I struggle a bit with that, that, you know, uh, you know they say, oh, well, no, we need debate, we need democratic discussion. But it's a bit like people who won't turn up the battle ideas because they're afraid of being tainted or, you know, uh, I find the centrist, in, the centrist position, well, of course, you know, they say we need, we, need, we need free speech, we need democratic debate. But they're almost as if they, they refuse to actually engage in the real debate about political issues. So it's almost like a noblesse oblige, they're above it. Well, I think that actually associated with that is the idea that if you've got strong opinions that you're pretty certain about, yeah. that you must be an extremist mm. who's dogmatic. Yeah. And obviously that makes it difficult because you all want to be, one, one wants to be open-minded. And I'm, mm. you know, I do go along with J.S. Mill on this, which is that you can always hear an argument that will change your mind. You know, so you don't want to be in a position where you just say, this is what I think and on this I stand mm. and nothing else. However, if you've thought about things for a long time, you can be pretty sure that this is broadly where you stand. Yeah. And that's now considered to be a, a kind of extreme position. Yeah. And so the centrist line is almost that a strong opinion on either side is beyond the pale. And mm. we all have to kind of gather somewhere in a mushy middle which mean, where nothing means anything in particular. Mm. And as you say, I, I like the way you phrased it, this idea of uh, rising above it. But actually, it's, it could be an act of cowardice of not engaging. Yeah. And I think mm. that in... in in that sense, it also has the very negative impact of demonising people who actually mm. do have strong opinions. And I, I, I also think it's, you're right to mention that this could be the end of politics. It, it, for me, the most frightening aspect of today's culture is that you can't contest a political issue any longer, that it's not even recognised as a valid thing to do, mm. to query, to prod, to interrogate, to push your opponents. And sometimes, by the way, political engagement can and has been historically quite ferocious. Mm. I mean, it hasn't been polite. Yeah. It, it can be quite rude and, and so on. And yet, it's actually been political. Yeah. Now the abuse is such that it's so personal, that but, but it's but mm. it's but it lacks political content. Yeah. And it's it's you're talking past each other. Yeah. So you know, some of the most creative insults have come from people who were showing each other in a way mutual respect by seeing each other as worthy opponents. Yeah. You know that somebody's not taking you seriously if they don't bother engaging with you. And at the moment, I think none of us take each other seriously enough mm. because we don't seriously engage with each other. Yeah. Um, so I don't like also, it's not just a centrism idea, it's this idea that we all have to be civil and polite because there's something about that that seems to me to be a bit gutless. And although I don't want, I hate the trolling and I hate the way mm. that politics is so toxic at the moment, I also don't want to sanitise political discussions mm. so that you're frightened that if you say the wrong thing, somebody will get upset. Yeah. Because that doesn't seem to be the answer either. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you, um, you know, we often hear this talk of centrism, and you know, I hate, I hate, you know, I hate all you, all you said about people who've got strong opinions are, are, are looked down upon. But at the same time, we've got this phenomenon of polarisation, um, social political polarisation and you know obviously the, the the main figure in that is is Donald Trump but isn't uh, my thinking is that um, if you create a political vacuum i.e. you have all these people who are who on both sides of 
politics were trying desperate to agree about these issues, you create a vacuum and you actually create the conditions in which you get someone like Trump who comes in and just says, you know, build a wall or whatever he says or, or, or governs through tweets. Um, it seems to me that you need to put actual content in politics to encourage people to engage and we resolve these issues by democratic debate and democratic decision. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm by no stretch of the imagination a fan of Donald Trump his style of politics or the content of much of what he says. But I think it's um, inevitable that you're going to have emerge mm. in a period where, as I've tried to indicate, there's just no principle left yeah. um, that, that that will happen. But on the polarisation, which is slightly different, I think it's, um, you know, this has happened in the UK around Brexit, of course. Um, <laughs> it kind of ha hangs over us as a, as a discussion, which is that there's the people who have had most control of the narrative for a long time mm. are not used to being held to account yeah. and have really uh, lost the ability to inter intervene, intervene in public life yeah. to uh, argue for their positions. And that's, yeah. I think um, uh, you have a situation where that's what is problematic about groupthink or, or echo chambers, mm. which is you're not you're not even exposing your own arguments yeah. to, the, to the kind of um, uh, you know, to an, any opposition. So you kind of just repeat it. And if you look at what happened with Donald Trump, it's the inability for people to even understand yes, what happened yeah, yeah. That, that indicates that something's gone very wrong with the yeah. way politics have been conducted. And that's exactly what's happened in the UK. I, it's perfectly reasonable for people to be on different sides of an argument mm. about whether one should be in a federalist European Union. I mean, you know, that's not the most exciting discussion in the world. It shouldn't mm. have elicited quite so much uh, heat. Yes. But because the, the people who lost in that instance um, mm. uh, are not used to losing and had no sort of sense of perception, hadn't spent any time sort of considering broader viewpoints, mm. they're absolutely outraged at this other view sort of somehow made through. So people are demonised as a consequence. Of course it can happen all ways because I have to say that Donald Trump is as much a snowflake as many a student. Very much. I mean, you know, thin-skinned, won't take criticism, mm. surrounds himself by yes-men, yes-women, whoever, um, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't engage either. So it's a, he's a kind of caricatured position. But as you say, people want a straight talker. And in as much as he's different, and at least mm. he doesn't kind of fit into some kind of moulded, uh, kind of uh, mm. uh, very slick politician, mm. he just, he just, he's being used almost by the electorate to give the establishment a bloody nose. I mean, that's the way I kind of saw his original uh, election. What really clarifies these problems about democratic debate and free speech and trying to understand the world in ways that are not just reduced to, you know, a, a series of virtue signalling or a series of poses is that I've found that even if you try and explain why Trump, you know, why people voted for Trump, people say no, the reason is he's a racist and racists follow, and racists have supported him. So there's a refusal. You're saying if you're trying to explain that phenomena, people see, people default to, this, to these forms of abuse and forms of offence to shut down debate, which is actually the exact opposite of the way, particularly people on the left need to go forward. If, if they are going to, say, win back the disaffected Trump voters who are in middle America or in the Brexit case, people who voted for Brexit um, in the north rather than you know, living in the prosperous south. Yeah, so I mean, Mark Leela, uh, professor of humanities um, from is it Harvard, um, wrote a very good New York Times uh, mm. article straight after Trump got elected, and he's a 
you know, he's a Democrat or would mm. be normally a Democrat, and he said the problem is our side, the Liberals, mm. uh, are, are sort of narcissistically so preoccupied with their own identities, and we've reared a generation mm. of young people who don't even know there's a world outside the kind of immediate yeah. circle they're in. And I think that, so that's the first thing, is that I think that we have um, isolated particularly young people from uh, their views. We, mm. we've, we've basically got into a situation where um, people are unaware that there are different and competing views on yeah. the, world, the world that we live in. But then, um, not used to being able to debate in a culture that's increasingly censorious, one of the tactics that's used all the time, which is what you've just described, is delegitimizing your opponents. I mean, yeah. it, you cannot go beyond, I mean, if, and you, then you don't have to bother, you know, if you call somebody uh, who voted Trump a fascist or a racist, I mean, why bother engaging with mm. them? Because, you know, there are a very small number of people in society that I wouldn't bother, you know, I'm, broadly speaking, a genuine alt-right white supremacist, not somebody I'm gonna say, let's come along to the battle of ideas, you must have a chat, you know what I mean? I mean, but this is a very small number of people. If, however, you describe everybody who voted <laughs> Trump in that way, yeah. you can explain that, oh, well, they're not even worth engaging with, right? Yeah. So, and that is what happens. Yeah. So you can actually avoid, again, holding your views to account or exposing your views to any challenge. And I'm afraid it happens on all sides. I, I'm very conscious of that. I mean, I wrote a book on um, free speech called I, I Find That Offensive, and I've been, according to Wikipedia, which is obviously ever so reliable, I was responsible for introducing the concept of um, Generation Snowflake into the UK, which I didn't, uh, entirely intend to do, but even I can see that that phrase, which I found useful when I was writing the book, is also a way of closing down debate from mm. my side, on a free speech side. You just say, oh, you're just a snowflake. Yeah. You know, that's not helpful either. Yeah. So we're all going to go around labelling each other as a way of avoiding talking to each other. What you can't do is go anything, pa you know, beyond the superficial. So it's so frustrating because I also think that there's a new, people that feel trapped and stuck in this, yeah. and I do a lot of university talks and talk in schools to, to 16 to 18 year olds, and you can see that although they ape the worst trends, yeah. they're also aware of the fact that they're being sold short by them, yeah. and that there's a kind of, there must be more to it. Yeah. And um, without being, uh, it, it's, it sounds a bit preposterous to say, but you know, people don't read enough. <laughs> sound yeah. like a teacher. Um, <laughs> I, I genuinely think that, that people need to read more to engage with the, what, a, a greater range of ideas, mm. even intellectually in their minds. I mean, even read more novels, just so that you can begin to see, oh, look, there's other people yeah. with different views, with different sentiments, but there's, there's somehow a, a closing down even of that yeah. engagement with a broader public discussion. That's a really great point. I'm, I'm a historian by training, and uh, what I really fear about the whole, the, and this particular, obviously in the universities, and you know the universities are one of the seedbeds of, of all the of a lot of these problems. One of the problems is that um, with the growth of identity politics, history is in danger of being obliterated because pretty soon all you are going to be able to write is biography because it's all about how people subjectively feel about the past. So when we're, we're again we're losing that. That, that threat of object, objectivity and the ability to rationally analyse what our social problems and other issues are. And one of the things that really strikes you is, you know, what starts off as saying um, we should broaden the canon or we should look at different writers or philosophers, you know, very quickly, for the worst kind mm. of cynical reasons and all, yeah. all sorts of problems with it. But it's not even that because actually you get to a point where you realise that 
that that won't satisfy anyone either because mm. I wouldn't even mind if they were reading some great black intellectual writers but yeah. then it's kind of like that's going to offend someone or it's not going to be quite right so mm. what happens is is that you just end up as you say which is lived experience and and an arrogance about saying well you know you won't be able to understand my life yeah. I mean how can you how dare you as a historian come along and try and interpret my history and it's obviously it's like you know what you need to be able to say to people is your history is utterly irrelevant mm. to this enterprise. Yeah. Nobody cares. You haven't achieved yeah. anything yet. And in order to yeah. achieve something, you might have to engage beyond yourself. Yeah. But that's obviously, nobody's going to say that yeah. because you'll lose your job. Um, yeah, if you're an academic, yeah. you know, so you end up kind of trying to pander to this yeah. identity politics that's incredibly narcissistic. But, but you know, every, I, I like the challenge to a conventional history that says there's another mm. side of the story. Yeah. That's actually history. Yeah. I mean, you know, understanding that there's a different versions, but the idea that you can't understand my history is mm. makes it impossible to have even a dialogue. And then, of course, there's the kind of, um, you know, literally the the, the the appropriation of past suffering nice. in order to enhance one's own biography. Yeah. So, you know, some 18-year-old privileged black kid going to Oxford University yeah. who's never suffered very much. Let's be honest. Um, suddenly says, well, you don't understand my history because look at slavery. And you think, you don't understand slavery. Yeah. You're at Oxford University yeah. doing PPE. Yeah. It's unlikely. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, th but you, you can't say that because yeah. somehow this is essentializing. So people's development of depth in relation to their own story is by accruing the victimology of previous yeah. sufferings that have happened historically yeah. that they don't even know about because yeah. I haven't read the book. Yeah. It's, it's actually a kind of, so it, it, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know, as people watching this will know, I'm obviously caricaturing, but these are trends, and, right. and, and, and they're, they're slightly less caricatured than I'd want them to be. And it, it, it ha these issues have a real impact, I think, on our social relations in, you know, we now live in UK, in Australia, we live in diverse societies, but we are, through this embrace of identity politics, we are lying to people not so much about the past, because obviously in the past there was, there was racism and prejudice and all those other things. We're lying to them about the current qualities of our, our own society and also about some of the, just some of the sheer social manners and the ethos that we need to, to live together peacefully and harmoniously. Yeah, but also, you know, I, it's, it's perfectly acceptable to understand that there was periods of barbarism, that, that you know, imperialism and colonialism has blood washing all over mm. its hands. We know those things to be true, or, or again, not wishing to assert, but you know, one can do some reading <laughs> and find out. Um, you don't have to have lived those experiences, and you can make a moral judgment about them from a position of the future, but you can also say, isn't it fantastic that we have progress and yeah. that things change, and you can understand why those things changed. You can then have a row about who's responsible for the abolition of slavery, because that's mm. contested. I understand yeah. that. But what you can't do is say, it still is with us, yeah. and, and it's still with us, and I am the living embodiment of it, because that actually makes a mockery of what it was. Mm. And so, you know, I, I, I think that that, I mean, one of the things we haven't said is, is that what, what is valorized to use that phrase, what is given social uh, weight today is suffering and victimhood. Mm -hmm. That's that's the thing. We have a different model of personhood than we had yeah. in the past. And I think Christopher Lash in, in The Age of Narcissism really gets to the heart <coughs> of how culturally you can have a different model. You know, yeah. if there was a kind of rather 
sort of caricatured stiff upper lip of a yeah. kind of English, you know, not, not, actually, not actually a model of personhood I particularly mm. admire, but nonetheless, you, every era has this model. Mm. Now what is the model that we ask young people to look up mm. to? It's, I can't cope, I'm so sensitive, I, I'm yeah. suffering. And, and that then means that the competition is not to, you know, as a woman, to mm. say to young women, you know, that used to say, I'm going to be treated equally like a man. It's, you don't know how much I've suffered, I am suffering. And so it's a completely different aspiration. Yeah. And I think we really need to shake that up. Can I pick up the issue of feminism? I'm going to assume you're a feminist. Um, one of the, one of the, the just pick up the idea of, of identity yeah. politics, I think what happens is it actually distorts our social conscience. And I'll give an example. I work in Macquarie Street in Sydney, uh, which is you know the CBD of Sydney, and within the you know square mile, say, of around where we are the most privileged people in the country, corporations, you know, high-flying jobs. Um, the social issue that preoccupies an enormous amount of the time of corporates in that space is whether there are enough women who are not earning $400,000 a year jobs, yeah. they're earning $1.4 million a year jobs as company directors. To me, this is, again, this is, this is a, a distortion of how we should really be thinking about, you know, where we should expend our limited social conscience, limited political capital. I agree. I mean, I, I, you know, for me, the fight for equality um, means that you should not be treated differently. Um, and it is un ultimately the case that there are, for actually more complicated reasons than discrimination, um, some disparity of wages, particularly at the top of big corporations or media organisations and so on. Um, you know, my heart bleeds, what can I say? And I, I, I think the, the tinnied way that some of the women who are involved in those campaigns don't seem to understand. I mean, this is, you know, in the middle of the Brexit debate where people have suddenly thought, oh, there is a group of people in this country that we haven't mm. talked to or understood for years yeah. and they suddenly emerged as voters yeah. and we're kind of all looking at them going, who are you? Yeah. You then get this argument about this is major gross exploitation and oppression of women at the heart of the BBC because, yeah. as you say, and you look at the mind-boggling figures of the amount of money they earn for presenting programmes and you think, fine, but maybe not make that such a big social question yeah, <laughs> or it yeah. have a little sensitivity to what's going on. And I think, it, again, it goes back to, to um, um, what a, that kind of narcissistic, inward-looking group thing where you, you, you just, you're not in, unable to sort of see beyond your own preoccupations. And I think that, that lacks empathy, it lacks generosity. But, you know, there are, there are still uh, real issues uh, in, in relation yeah. to, to the fight for women's rights, but it is, inconceivable to me that people would and I'm, I meet by the way young people women all the time who say well it's all very well your generation you know you put up with uh, sexual harassment and you you know we won't put up with it you know we have got higher standards and what they are less aware of is that um, equality is a relatively modern concept and mm. was fought for mm. and these things appear rather trivial on in comparison but uh, we had um, Camille Paglia over for the Battle of Ideas a few years ago, and she was riveting, but she reminded the students in the room that it wasn't, when she went to university, for example, um, there was a curfew on women, and they had to be escorted across campus. Mm. And the fight that they indulged, you know, that they really kind of fought for, was the right 
um, to to risk being raped, and the audience nearly had a heart attack of you know. And then she said, yes, but you know, they were telling us that we needed to be escorted like we were kind of Victorian ladies mm. uh, in case we were sexually molested. We said, we're 18, 19, this is the, what are you talking about? This is the 60s, we want to be free. Mm. We, our young men might be attacked when they walk across campus, but, and we are equal to them. We want the right to risk being raped. And she mm. kept saying it, and everybody, no, you can imagine in today's, <laughs> but, but then you thought, well, this is quite, this, that was a genuinely big thing they fought for, yeah. and we don't even think about it. Now, guess what we're demanding on university campuses? Escorts for women mm. to cross campus in case they're raped, and feminist groups demanding protection and that they are kept safe in a very infantilized mm. way. And I think she was drawing attention to the fact that this might not be a step forward and that, that one has to, and that's why one has to have a sense historically of what's changed. You yeah. know, that's why you need to know what racism was, what it is, that doesn't make you complacent about uh, discrimination when it happens today, but it is very different even from when I was young, um, when people were being burnt out of their houses because they were Asian, mm. and the police arresting the families yeah. for burning themselves out, and these, you know, things that, you, I mean, you couldn't, yeah. I mean, proper racism, yeah. as it were, and uh, it's different now, and there are challenges around racism, but they are by no means as severe as mm. they were. You've made the transition recently from thinker and commentator on politics to actual practitioner, um, being elected an MEP, a member of the European Parliament for the Brexit Party. What has amazed me, looking from afar at the whole Brexit process, is the willingness of both members of Parliament, of the, of the British Parliament, and also within the bureaucracy to just blithely seek to frustrate the democratically expressed will of the British people. And without even a any sense of shame, even a hint of shame that, that you know, it's, they're doing something fundamentally wrong here. Uh, am I naive to think that they should be ashamed or, or, or even worse, they should actually implement the democratic will of the people? Well, obviously, I would agree with you. But I, I, going back to our earlier conversation, in a society where you can delegitimise people so easily, mm. that's one of the things that's happened. So it is... With, a, with no embarrassment at all, it is discussed that people who voted to leave the European Union didn't know what they were voting for because they were lied to or manipulated or they were too stupid to understand. Mm. And consequently, these people are trying to thwart the will of uh, uh, the people, see themselves, and I think it's, that's how they see themselves, mm. as saving the people from themselves, themselves you know, yeah. and saying, oh no, you, no, what you don't understand, you lot over there, is that you have been manipulated by these, uh, these very clever, rich people. And I'll often pose it like that, you know, mm. the, the elites, and there's a few, there's a few of the elite that yeah. supported Brexit. Actually, most of them were on, on, yeah, on the Remain side. side but, um, so that the, so the kind of, uh, it, it shows you how thin democracy is. That's yeah. the thing for me. You, that's when you also realise, so it's the 200th anniversary of the Peterloo yeah. Massacre, a uh, famous massacre in Manchester in northwest England, and where that was one of the, the, the first things that happened where people were demanding representation in mm. Parliament, not even not even uh, one person, one vote, but mm. it, it created the, and, and, and the, uh, the, the landowners and the um, cavalry, you know, yeah. put a paid to that. But it was a historically important moment because it, 
facilitated uh, a discussion in society that then said, actually, we should have chartism, and we ended up with a uh, uh, universal franchise. Anyway, so there's a film called Peterloo, mm. and everybody goes to see it, and everybody celebrates it, and they say, this is what democracy is all about, and there's been conferences, and, you know, and then there are all people who say, oh, yes, but the, in the Brexit vote recently, they didn't know what they were doing. Mm. And it's like this extraordinary, I mean, and whereas I see Peterloo as a perfect example of why historically we should recognise that the, the, the vote was fought for hard. Yeah. People lost their lives in the fight for it. It was a major struggle uh, amongst ordinary people in, in, in well, around the world, but, mm. you know, in the UK. And um, to throw it away, to treat it so glibly, is really frightening to me. Mm. And, and you suddenly realise the, that, that everything needs to be fought for over and over again. The arguments need to be remade. Yeah. So it, a bit, as we were saying about free speech, you realise you can't just say it's democracy anymore. You have to actually be able to inhabit that, give it some content, mm. because the phrase doesn't mean anything anymore. Mm. And at the moment, the people who are trying to stop Brexit being implemented are saying that they are the Democrats. So now there's an yeah. argument about who represents democracy, really. So it's fascinating. Through the Battle of Ideas, you've been dedicated to promoting the culture of democratic debate. You've now entered um, the European Parliament to defend the principles of democracy at the national level through trying to get Brexit implemented. However, one of the, the great things about the Battle of Ideas was that I was very struck by the level of uh, corporate support that you had and that it seemed to me that the corporates who were backing you had a, had a real commitment towards the, the ethos and, and vision of the, of, the, uh, of the event. That's changed since you've entered. Yeah, uh, there's less, there's, there's um, a reluctance to be associated with the Brexit party um, because yeah. of my association yeah. with the Brexit party. And again, you know, it's so frustrating because uh, in general, I think that uh, corporate support for events like this is essential. I think it's essential for the corporates because if anyone's in an echo chamber in a bubble, yeah. these days it's corporates. And those people who've supported the festival over the years have actually appreciated that they've been exposed to a wider range of yeah. ideas than they would normally um, be, and they bring their graduate schemes and you know those yeah. kind of things. But such is the toxic nature of the Brexit debate that that is a challenge, and you know it's a worry. Yeah. and it's a pain in the neck and <laughs> it's an act of cowardice and what can I say but I, I think that I, but you know I and I knew that, that these things were a risk I think that there are just times in history when you think oh I think it's yeah. <laughs> I think this might be more important than it's whether the Academy of Ideas can survive or whether I can carry on running a festival yeah. not because I want either of them to go under yeah. but I thought you know in the end there was something much more important at stake. And in some ways, partly I felt that I couldn't, because I'm quite well known, mm. I realised that if I stood, it would shake up the way the Brexit party mm. was seen and it would have an influence. Mm. I mean, I didn't realise quite how savage the world would turn against me, but it also, on the more positive side, meant that people were saying, oh my God, if she, if she's standing for that, yeah. you know, that's, that kind of changes it so that that's why it's been important but but um, you know to have kind of just gone back to have kind of been talking about it at the Battle of Ideas in the midst of this kind of tumult in, 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 in British politics and to have not kind of 
you know, put myself forward when I was asked. I mean, if I hadn't been asked, I wouldn't have offered. Um, or, you know, I, I, I just thought, you know, ultimately, this is the test of anyone politically, isn't it? You know, there's no point just talking about it. Mm. In the end, I want to change the world for the better, or rather, I certainly don't want it to be changed for the worst. And I, I could see that everything I believed in, on freedom, on democracy, on, on, on giving people a voice, was just going to be destroyed if they got away with selling out Brexit. And I just felt that that was too big a, a, to let that happen without kind of putting yourself, your head above the parapet, which is too much, really. So um, ho I'm hoping that um, we'll find new ways of organising into the future, if not the old ways. But we're having the Battle of Ideas this year, so yeah. if anyone is in London, 2nd to 3rd of November, we'll definitely get through to the end of this year. After that, well, you know, the future's a risk and, a, and an exciting adventure, if not a bit of a roller coaster and a bit scary. Well, as I said, the Battle of Ideas was the best conference I've ever been to. More power to you. Here's to a prosperous and long future of the Thank battle. You. And thanks very much, Claire. Thank you very much.